there. Welcome to the Real World NP Podcast. I'm Liz Rohr, family nurse practitioner, educator, and founder of Real World NP, an educational company for nurse practitioners in primary care. I'm on a mission to equip and guide new nurse practitioners so that they can feel confident, capable, and take the best care of their patients. If you're looking for clinical pearls and practice tips without the fluff, you're in the right place. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review so you won't miss an episode. Plus, you'll find links to all the episodes with extra goodies over at realworldnp.com podcast. So in this week's episode, I'm going to be talking about interpreting high white blood cell counts, leukocytosis. And I'm going to be doing so using a case study of a patient that I saw in real life in clinic. All of the personal health information has been changed, so it's not their real name or any of their demographic information. But hopefully you enjoy this. I thought it was such an interesting case, and I think that it also helps highlight the step-by-step approach to interpreting high white blood cell counts. And so I want to pause before we jump in and say that I used to dread lab interpretation as a new nurse practitioner. Like, I would not want to open my computer because it was so stressful seeing all the red exclamation points next to labs and not quite being sure what to do about them. And so fast forward to about four years later, um, when I started Real World NP, I actually made a lab interpretation crash course to help nurse practitioners, both new and experienced, get to the real depth of lab interpretation to a place where they can feel really confident, like actually enjoy interpreting their labs, which sounds maybe kind of funny, but I actually enjoy labs now because it feels so easy and it's so interesting. And it's just a diagnostic process that feels a lot more light. So if you are interested in joining us for that, I'd love to help you feel better about lab interpretation. You can find all the information over at realworldnp.com labs, and it's all the main labs in primary care, CBC, CMP, urinalysis, TSH, uh, lipids, and then the top endocrine labs in primary care. So when people come in and say, I just want you to check my hormones, those are the labs that I'm talking about. So prolactin, testosterone, all of the labs for um, assessing amenorrhea or menopause or perimenopause. So if you want to join us for that, hopefully I can help you feel really confident. And again, that's at realworldnp.com slash labs. However, in this case study, hopefully you will walk away feeling really confident with the approach to high white blood cell counts in primary care. So the patient I have here, again, this is not his real name. We're just going to call him Luis. So Luis is a Latino cis male patient. He's 50 years old. And at the time of the visit, he was re-establishing care with a new PCP. So this patient had a previous history of an abdominal wall hernia. It had been going on and off for a year where it was soft and reducible, but was still causing him some pain. He had seen a specialist and was recommended to have surgery done for his hernia. He also had a lipoma biopsied on his body that was uh, benign. And that's the most significant past medical history that he had. Other relevant past medical history is that he was a former 30-pack year smoker, um, but luckily had quit 12 years prior to the time of a visit. He also did not use alcohol or any other drugs. For past medical history, additionally, he had a history of hyperlipidemia, a BMI of greater than 30, but at the time of the visit, he had lost some weight. 
And actually a disclaimer I want to add is that I saw this patient in real life, but this case that I'm talking about in these lab results that we're going to talk about are based on a previous visit from another provider. So I was really putting the puzzle pieces together. So he had lost some weight, but it was unclear whether or not he had um, been losing weight to try to lose weight versus if it was unintentional, how much it was over the course of what period of time. You know, a little pearl there is to make sure you document all of those things when it comes to weight loss for a patient. But that's that's the moral of the story there is that it was not very clear. He had lost some weight, unclear how much over what period of time, et cetera. For family history, he had a family history of a stroke, diabetes on his mother's side, and hypertension on his father's side. He had not had any surgeries done before, and he did not take any medications. At the time of the visit, his blood pressure was normal, 130 over 86, heart rate of 80. His BMI actually had gone down to 29 from over 30, and his temperature and his oxygen level and his respiratory rate were all normal. So when it comes to the rest of the assessment of the visit, so for ROS, the, the time of that visit, that this I saw this patient in real life, but not at that time. But at that time of that visit, his he was negative for fever, chills, weakness, and then had no respiratory or cardiac symptoms as well, and no GI symptoms, no nausea, vomiting, constipation, or diarrhea. He just had that abdominal pain related to the hernia. Um, so for his exam, the provider had done an H-E-E-N-T exam, which was normal, respiratory, cardiovascular, neurologic and psychiatric were all within normal limits. For the abdominal exam, it was positive for a ventral hernia that was reducible and only noted with straining. He did not have any guarding, rebound, tenderness, or hepatosplenomegaly. So that was great. So overall, his exam was normal aside from the hernia and had really no other symptoms aside from that weight loss which was kind of unclear. And I guess another pearl I want to throw into here is that the main purpose of your documentation, it's especially as a new grad, you're probably going to write a lot more, or you did write a lot more if you're not a new grad anymore. Um, you probably write a lot more than most providers do because you're kind of nervous about it. But one of the main purposes and guiding principles of writing your note is to communicate with the next providers. So if we can put the puzzle pieces together based on what you've said already, hopefully that will be a helpful kind of like breadcrumb trail for that next provider to follow. So for the plan for this patient, so that's like the initial visit is the history and the ROS and the physical exam. And in this episode, I'm really focusing on lab interpretation. However, every patient is a, is, is a whole person that has holistic care, right? So I'm really going to be focusing on labs and lab interpretation. But at the end of the episode, I'll talk about the rest of the components of his care. So at the time of the visit, that provider had checked some labs for him. So CBC, CMP, hemoglobin A1C, and lipids, and had also placed that general surgery consult again that had been placed before, but he had never uh, followed through with. And one note I want to say here about labs, and I get this question a lot from new nurse practitioners especially, is knowing when to order what labs. And I think that as a culture of medicine in the United States, we tend to order a lot more labs than we might actually need to. And the way that I determine what labs to order is typically based on the medical conditions that they have, 
And so like, why would you order a lab for that medical condition, right? So if they are having fatigue, for example, you're ordering a CBC because they're, because you're looking for anemia, for example, like there's a clear rationale for why you're ordering something. And for a CMP, you, same thing. Like, why are you checking electrolytes? Why are you checking the liver function tests? What rationale do you have there? Keeping that in your mind, medically speaking, are you looking at the kidney function because they're on medication for hypertension and you want to make sure it's still safe to give them that med, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other way to approach it is by the screening guidelines of your choice. And so I had a whole class on this in my grad program of looking at different guidelines from different organizations. And then hopefully, you know, you have had practice with that where you can see, you know, hey, USPSTF, um, United States Preventative Services Task Force, for example, has these recommendations for these labs at this time, right? Lipid screening for um, cis men and cis women ages 35 and 45. Um, respectively, as a screening test. For example, hemoglobin A1C potentially for patients with a BMI greater than 25 or 30, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, moving on, I again, this is based on a patient visit that I was not conducting, but it was a historical review and I thought it was fun. So, um, so anyway, let's talk about the lab results from that visit. So the patient has left, um, you place that surgical consult for him, gave him precautions about his abdominal um, hernia, and then you order the lab tests, and then when they come back to your inbox, here they are. And so I'm going to walk through them slowly because this is by audio instead of visual. However, if you are a visual person, I, I have this case study also on the YouTube channel if you wanted to see them visually. So for the results, the CMP, complete metabolic panel, the A1C, and lipids were all normal. So I'm not even going to read those results. However, the CBC was abnormal, which again, this, this is why we're doing this case study today because we're talking about high white blood cell counts. So when it comes to the CBC, you're looking at hematocrit, hemoglobin, MCV, the mean corpuscular volume, the size of the cells, platelets, red blood cells, RDW. Effectively, those were normal, except for a slightly low hematocrit and hemoglobin of 39.8% hematocrit, and then hemoglobin of 13.5, with the reference ranges being about 40 to 54 and 14 to 18. So I know that's a lot of numbers to throw at you, but basically it was like slightly normal. And then everything else in the CBC was normal, except for the white blood cell count. So typical range for a white blood cell count is about 4,000 to 11,000, depends on your lab's reference range. And in, this is talking U.S. units. If you're in outside of the U.S., you can use international units and there's a conversion that you can calculate online um, if you wanted to convert those over. But anyway, the normal reference range is about 4 to 11. And so his was 74. It was quite high right? That's among the highest that I've seen in primary care. That's why I wanted to tell you about it. So um, the next step, and I'm going to get into this a little bit more when it comes to the approach of high white blood cells, is the first step when you're looking at a high white blood cell count is what is the differential? So like it's significant, but it doesn't really mean much to us in terms of the diagnostic process until we understand what types of white blood cells we're talking about. So there's lymphocytes, monocytes, basophils, eosinophils, neutrophils, and then bands. So I'm going to talk about each of those uh, in just a second. But for this person, just know that the elevated components were lymphocytes, and then the neutrophils were disproportionately lower than they should be. So the lymphocytes were high, the neutrophils were low, the other components were, were normal. And then there was another section that came up that I hadn't seen before, which is called other cells. So hold that thought for a second. And that was also abnormal. 
So just again, hold that thought. We'll get into that. So let's, let's pause on that case for a second and talk about leukocytosis. So again, just like I said, it means a high white blood cell count, but that is really not specific. So whenever you see a high white blood cell count, your automatic first next step or question is what does the differential say? What type of white blood cells are we talking about? So next, I'm going to talk about the, this, the steps to working up leukocytosis. But one overarching theme about CBC results in general is that they typically, you have to follow the diagnostic process and come up with what the differential diagnoses are. However, the kind of global, big zoomed out picture is that most CBCs, any of the components, are abnormal because of either one a bone marrow problem, which is where all those cells come from in the first place, right? Versus it's something in the body that is, is causing a reaction, that the, that the bone marrow needs to respond to something in the body as a reaction, and that is a compensating for that. And the reason I say that is it's kind of a foundational element to keep in your mind is like, is there something, is, is the CBC responding to like an internal insult in the body versus is there something inherently wrong with the bone marrow itself? Like, is there a cancer of some kind, which is causing it to make all sorts of weird looking stuff and too much of it or too little of it, for example. So generally speaking, keeping that kind of like broad overview in mind, the three kind of main things you want to think about when it comes to a high white blood cell count is again, what type of white blood cells are we talking about on the differential? And then additionally from there, I'm going to talk a little bit about the peripheral smear and what that means, it's related to the differential, so stay tuned. Stick with me. So um, so what type of white blood cell count are we talking about? And what does the peripheral smear say? Those are related. How high are we actually talking here? Like you can really break down when to freak out based on how high this is. And then the third piece is whether or not they have any symptoms. And I think one of the things, if, I can, if you can walk away with this from this episode, is that most of the time we don't need to freak out. <laughs> because I think as a nurse practitioner, as a, especially as a new nurse practitioner, we want to freak out about stuff or we don't want to, but we do because we're nervous. But the more you understand and the more you know, the more readily you cannot freak out basically. And most of the time when it comes to elevated white blood cell counts, anecdotally in my primary care experience over the last six years is that most of the time it's incidental where you, you do a lab test, you look at the results, they had no symptoms in the first place. It's only slightly high and, you know, you follow the next steps from there. But if they had symptoms or not, that is pretty significant. If it's an incidental finding, you can already lower your stress level. So first off, let's talk about symptoms first, actually. So again, keeping in mind that most CBC abnormalities are going to be bone marrow problems or an internal body reaction. So internal body reaction means things like active illness. Did they have any symptoms of an active illness at the time that you ordered those blood tests? For example, Louise, who had the abdominal pain. So those are pointing to things like viruses, bacterial infections, um, leukemia, or other bone marrow um, dysfunction problems, any sort of inflammatory processes. So for example, like if it was an, an, illness, an active illness of some kind, did they have fever, chills, other systemic symptoms, sweating, fatigue, weight loss, et cetera? Did they have any physical signs like lymphadenopathy or splenomegaly? Um, do they have an active arthritis? Like not just ar arthralgia, like where your joints are painful, but did they have a swollen joint? Or were there any physical signs that you can think of at the time of that visit that might have contributed to the white blood cell count being high? 
Or did they come in for a specific reason of like, you know what, I really don't feel well. You know, I have fever and chills. And then you order a white blood cell count. Those next steps depend on that, right? So how high are we talking? I, I think that is like the next thing to talk about. So how high is it? Like, like I said, the normal reference range is about four to, four to 11,000, four to 11. And you just want to correlate it clinically. And what I mean by that is when you sit down, you look at your inbox, you see a white blood cell count of 20, you want to think about, okay, did they have any symptoms at the time of the visit, either when you saw them or somebody else did? For the most part, anything 20 or more those patients need a lot more urgent treatment or evaluation. And again, you want to follow those steps of like, did they have any symptoms? What type are we talking about? What does the peripheral smear say? Which I'll talk about in just a second. However, things that are less than 20, potentially, depending if they have symptoms or not, if they have symptoms, you want to correlate, again, correlate clinically, meaning how, what, were the next, what would the next steps be that you would take for that physical symptom that you saw in front of you that correlate with that white blood cell count? You're treating the person and the illness, not the lab, right? Versus if they didn't have any symptoms at all and it was less than 20, the typical approach for most labs that I talk about actually is that you want to look at the last ones that they have available. So did they have anything before has this already been investigated? Have they had a white blood cell count of 16 over the last 10 years? And they've already seen hematology about it, right? Like that's the first mistake that I see. One of the mistakes that first mistakes that I see new nurse practitioners make is that they kind of automatically freak out with the thing that's in front of them instead of looking backwards. Did they have symptoms? Have they had this before? Did they see anybody before, et cetera? But typically less than 20, around 15 to 20, you could expert level of opinion consensus model is that you could repeat those in the, in the next couple of days to see if it's persistent, as well as making sure that you have that differential and peripheral smear. You're not just looking at a plain white blood cell count of you know 17, and then you don't have the breakdown of the differential down below. Anything that is persistently out of the reference range, you know, in that, you know, range of anything above 11 to 20 and it's persistent you've rechecked it in a couple of days to a week and they don't have any symptoms but it's chronic those patients need hematology evaluation and then one other kind of like anchoring piece that i talk about with lab interpretation is that there are these like when to worry values so when it comes to white blood cells definitely anything above a hundred thousand especially as a new nurse practitioner needs supervisor and or colleague consensus like evaluation, but those likely need to go to the ER. And the rationale for that is that it increases the viscosity of the blood. So they're at much higher risk for a blood clot. So there are other scenarios where patients with, especially with known bone marrow dysfunction that are being followed by hematology might have higher levels than that, but that is not our determination to make as a primary care provider. So just to recap and keep us up to speed. So talking about high white blood cells, we're thinking about like what component are we talking about? Did they have any symptoms in the first place? And how high are we talking here? Is it 100? Is it 20? Is it 12? Right? Because if it's 12, which is like one point out of the reference range, we can kind of freak out a little bit less, right? Like that's not necessarily as urgent, especially if they don't have symptoms in the first place. So I want to talk about the differential and the peripheral smear for a second. This is not comprehensive in terms of, I am not a hematology NP, but I did make the lab interpretation crash course and this information, which is basically pulled from outside the lab crash course, done in collaboration with the hematology physician. So just to report back that I am not a specialist, but I did collaborate with some specialists. So, but it also is a very brief overview. 
If you want like all the information that I have to share, especially from that hematology MD, definitely join us inside the lab crash course. It's got really great resources you can print out and keep at your desk as well. But anyway, I just, I don't want to get too much into depth because there's a lot of information that I'm giving you right now. But I just want to talk briefly about the differential. So the differential is an automated breakdown of all the different cell, white blood cell types done by a machine. A peripheral smear is a secondary test that you can add on. And basically what that is, is that there is a pathologist, a physician, who will manually verify a blood sample underneath a microscope to make sure that the components that the machine has told us is the same. And for the most part, the machines are actually pretty accurate. However, when you have an abnormal white blood cell count, you almost always want to have both a differential and a smear because one potential other component that the differential may or may not have is talking about cell sizes and shapes. So peripheral smear can tell us things like a bunch of fancy words, and I don't want to throw too much information at you, but things like anisocytosis, poikilocytosis, et cetera, et cetera, smudge cells, things like that. If you want to check out either the YouTube video or the lab crash course, I, I get into it a little bit on the YouTube channel, but I don't want to throw too much information at you. But basically, I want to talk about the peripheral smear red flags. So blasts, anything that ends in a blast, lymphoblasts, myeloblasts, those are never normal. And that's something that you would find on that peripheral smear. Those patients definitely need to go to oncology, hematology. And then there are a number of other things to look into. Poikilocytosis just means that shape variant that, uh, and I'm actually going to spell it because I'm a very visual person, but it's P-O-I-K-I-L-O and then cytosis. It's a shape variant and it can be a red flag, but it definitely warrants evaluation. But anyway, moral of the story here is that we need to order the CBC with differential and then also look at those peripheral smear kind of confirmation slides from the pathologist to make sure that the cells are looking normally sized and shaped. Because if you go, if you remember back to what I said, the main overarching umbrella of looking at abnormal CBCs is, is there something wrong with the bone marrow, right? Which is, would be reflected on a peripheral smear because it would be kind of like putting out either undercooked cells or abnormally shaped or sized cells versus is there something in the body that the bone marrow is reacting to, right? So that's why that's so important as a test. And there's so much I could say about each of those differential and peripheral smear, but I'll, I think I'll leave it at that. I mean, the main thing about the differential, like I said, in terms of uh, Luis's lab results is that you want to look at lymphocytes versus neutrophils, eosinophils, monocytes, basophils, et cetera, et cetera. And I guess one, one last quick note about that. I like really can't help myself because I want to tell people all the things all the time, but I also know that that's information overload. But one last thing about the differential, there's something called the left shift and it is, um, it's kind of treated like it's this like magical fancy thing. And what it, what it actually means is that when you look at the differential, basically what you're looking at is which of the cell breakdown is the most popular, right? So if lymphocytes are way higher than they should be, then that's the one you want to look to in terms of generating your differential. Left shift is referring to neutrophils, which are most associated with bacterial infections, but can be other things. But neutrophils and then bands, bands are also known as immature granulocytes or immature neutrophils, and those are the early version of neutrophils. And the reason that's significant is that if the most popular element of your differential is saying bands, that is what is kind of quote unquote left shift. 
And that just refers to, it's a clue to us that potentially the most predominant type of white blood cell is neutrophils and early neutrophils, meaning it might be responding to a bacterial infection of some kind, right? So I think I said, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. But anyway, just like, let's recap for a second. So high white blood cells, step one, did they have any symptoms at all? right? Is this incidental finding or did they come in to see you because they had fever, chills, dysuria, abdominal pain, et cetera? The next thing is how high are we talking here, right? Recognizing that there's a when to worry value of definitely greater than 100,000 needs to go to the ER. And then, you know, underneath that, in that like 15 to like 20 plus range of white blood cell count is a little bit more of an urgent referral versus anything less than 20 potentially has some steps to work up in primary care first. So that's like the general, general approach. And then when it comes to your diagnosis, you're looking at, again, that overarching picture of like, are, is, this, is there something in the body the bone marrow is reacting to versus is there something inherently wrong with the bone marrow, which again, you can determine based on the clinical picture of the person, but also looking at the differential and peripheral smear to see if there's any funky looking cells that shouldn't be coming out of the bone marrow in the first place. So let's go back to Louise for a second. So if you remember, (laughs) all the way back to the beginning of this episode, his white blood cell count was actually 74, 76. I might be misquoting myself. I think it's 74. But it's very concerning. Like that's one of the highest white blood cell counts I've ever seen. And if you remember back to the differential that was ordered as well, the most predominant option was lymphocytes. And lymphocytes, I didn't get into the super in this episode. It's on the YouTube channel and even more in depth than the lab crash course in terms of like what differentials lead to what breakdown of CBC with diff. Lymphocytes tend to be associated with more viral illnesses, but it can be a lot of other things, including hematologic malignancies. And if you remember as well, there was a certain percentage of cells called quote unquote other cells that were actually categorized as atypical lymphocytes. So it's like all lymphocytes plus more atypical lymphocytes and then a really low percentage of neutrophils. And typically I see that happen with when there's one high percentage of one, then another will drop in compensation. So it's all percentages that lead up to 100 basically. So anyway, his labs were showing a very high white blood cell count, predominant lymphocytes with atypical lymphocytes. And the lab called, the lab called, and they automatically added on a peripheral smear, which also might be called pathologist review of peripheral smear, showing atypical lymphocytes. So basically the differential machine said other cells, and then the pathologist reported back that it was atypical lymphocytes with an abnormal morphology. So if you remember to what I said, when it comes to a CBC with diff and the peripheral smear, you're looking to see if there are abnormal size and shape of all the different cells which can point to more of a bone marrow problem. Another thing is that when it comes to the differential, you can look at the absolute counts. I didn't really get into this. I'm trying not to overwhelm you with information, but there's something called an absolute lymphocyte count. When it comes to the differential, it's going to be reported to you most likely in percentages. So 50%, 60%, 70%, et cetera. And so basically what you're doing is just calculating that percentage compared to the total white blood cell count. Like how many actual cells are we talking about? Not just a percentage, but how many cells in the body? So for the absolute lymphocyte count, it actually comes out to be about 49,000. And typically it should be a lot less, like a thousand or something like that. Um, I don't have the reference range right in front of me, but anything greater than 30,000 is very concerning. And those patients definitely need to see hematology. 
One of the nice things about our lab and our workflow and the fact that a pathologist was involved automatically because of how abnormal the result was, and likely your lab has a similar workflow, they wrote on their report that they recommend a test called flow cytometry, and then they added it on automatically themselves. So flow cytometry is another test that you'll see in terms of the algorithm of workup, which I'm going to go through after I talk about this case right now to tell you the steps of what to do next. But basically that is a, the flow cytometry is a test that you add on to very abnormal white blood cell counts and or CBCs because it can tell you the breakdown of all the different types of cells kind of a little bit further. And again, I'm not a hematology NP, so I'm just going to leave it at that. But in terms of your role and our role in primary care, what I do in terms of like the scope is that I handle what I can handle in primary care, and then I will order the next tests to be available for the specialist to interpret. So flow cytometry is a great example of that. The only instance in which I order that is when I'm already sending them to hematology oncology and I let the patient know like, oh, hey, this is, this is actually like part of the process so that this test is ready for them, but they are the experts where they're going to discuss the results of what this means in the next steps with you, right? So anyway, so we referred him, they, the provider at the time referred him to hematology oncology more urgently in like the next week, a couple of days to week. And then the other thing, like I said, when it comes to assessing a high white blood cell count is asking if they had any symptoms. Aside from his abdominal pain related to his hernia, he had no symptoms, no fever, chills, hypertension, things like that. So I just want to recap. We'll, we'll talk about Luis a little bit in one second, but just to recap, when it comes to the algorithm of workup for leukocytosis, I'm so visual. I keep saying that, but I'm so visual. So I'm going to try really hard to explain it without relying on the visuals. But when it comes, so in terms of the step-by-step, step one how high are we talking, right? Choose any of them. I basically do them all simultaneously. That's why I keep mi mixing up the order because you really have to ask yourself all three of those questions at the same time. But how high are we talking, right? And if you remember, this like absolutely needs to go to the ER unless there's like very specific supervision from your supervisor, colleagues, and or hematology, oncology, anything over 100 needs to go to the ER because they can have hyperviscosity, which leads to potentially venothromboembolism, right? Most patients need to go to the ER. If you have any clinical concerns of somebody who's febrile or hypotensive or anything like that, those patients can also go to the ER. However, for patients who are less than 100, ideally, like most of the time that I've seen the really elevated counts, they tend to be like 50 to 75. I've never really seen over 100 in primary care. If anything is under 20, we just kind of take a pause and do our next steps, right? Don't freak out. If there's anything greater than 11,000, that's less than 20,000 approximately, you want to make sure, number one, you have a differential. You add on that peripheral smear, which might just say verified, which is like kind of like a disappointing result. But again, it's a physical person, physician, pathologist who is looking at the cells underneath the microscope and is verifying that the differential is the same. So it might say there's like poikilocytosis and anisocytosis and myeloblast, lymphoblast, like things like that. That's what that will say on the peripheral smear. And again, keeping in mind that anything that ends in blast is a definite red flag, right? Getting those down, looking at the differential, looking at the peripheral smear, and then thinking if they have any symptoms, right? If it's anything less than about 15 to 20, and I keep waffling on that 15 to 20 is because when I was a new grad, I felt really uncomfortable waiting on anything above 15. But if it was less than 15, I'd be like, oh, okay, I can just check that in a couple of days to a week. 
right? With the next steps, again, keeping in mind, did you look at the past records that they had? Have they had this happen before? Did they see hematology before? Et cetera, et cetera. However, anybody that has symptoms needs to correlate clinically. You're treating the person and not the labs, right? However, if it's anything greater than 15 to 20 and they don't have any symptoms at all, those patients likely need to go to hematology with, again, those other tests, differential, peripheral smear, and then again, assessing their symptoms. But one pearl of assessing CBCs potentially to take with you is that they can be very finicky. And so if you order a CBC with diff today, and then you order it again tomorrow or in a week from now, it could change. So like one, one of the jokes from hematologists is like the patients arrive at their appointment. They had one abnormal CBC that they got referred for. They arrive at their appointment. The, the hematologist just rechecks the CBC and then they're cured. Like that's like the, 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 the running joke among hematologists. So just always make sure, again, using your clinical judgment, like you have the clinical judgment to assess a patient in front of you or how sick they are, like how sick are they in front of you, treating them first. And then if you're within the range of like, okay, none of this needs to go to the ER, gets urgently assessed because they're symptomatic, thinking about those next steps of what other information do you need to help you understand the diagnosis, again, differential, peripheral smear, things like that. And then deciding if we can recheck safely in another couple of days to a week versus do they need to go right to hematology? Again, keeping in mind that they might recheck it themselves and then, you know, it might go back to normal. But for the most part, if somebody has a CBC, a white blood cell count of 74, 76, like Louise has, those patients I'm not going to mess around with and say, oh, you need to wait a week. Like, I no, I'm going to send them directly to hematology because typically those CBCs that go right back to normal are the slightly elevated ones or slightly decreased ones in the first place. So hopefully that's really clear for you. And, and again, I'm a very visual person. So definitely check out the channel on realworldyoutube.com slash realworldnp to find the leukocytosis case study for a visual representation of that algorithm. But yeah, just recapping with Luis, he got sent to hematology and oncology in about a week. And another like kind of pearl of practice, it's really hard to know when you're a new grad what is urgent and what is not sometimes. And so for the most part, when I talked with hematologists putting together the lab course and putting together my own understanding of lab interpretation was that most of the time when it comes to abnormal hematology, the most absolute urgent patients are with really low white blood cell counts that are symptomatic. And those patients definitely need to go right to an ER, right? But for the most part, even if it's like a is some sort of hematologic malignancy, most of them are not imminently dangerous. And so it's important to pay attention to and act on, but we don't always need to freak out as much as we do. And I think that I think that from their perspective, primary care across the board, whether or not you're an NP or an MD, et cetera, et cetera, like I think we all kind of freak out a little bit. So the more you learn about differential diagnosis and about lab interpretation, the more comfortable you'll feel being like, okay, I got this, right? This white blood cell count is 16, but I'm going to look at the last records. I'm going to look at the differential. I'm going to ask a bunch of questions. Like, I got this, you know? I, I can't help myself but talk about the lab interpretation course, but if you want more support and differentials and cheat sheets and all that kind of stuff and all the algorithms to really help you quickly interpret labs, like definitely, definitely, definitely join us. But when it comes to Luis, wrapping back up with him, he went to hematology and oncology. He had a general surgery consultation for hernia repair. And then the other piece that I always recommend, especially to new grads, it's hard not to, it's hard not to get swept away by the thing that's sitting in front of you. But if you can think about what are the other components of primary care that he needs, right? So 
I mean, this is my philosophy of practice, but even when a patient is not my primary care patient and is not on my panel, I'm still mindful of like, okay, like what are the stats of, and it's nice that we have this handout sheet at my clinic where it kind of says their stats of when their last colonoscopy was or mammogram or physical or dental appointment, like things like that. And I'm kind of taking a quick glance, even again, if it's not my patient, I'm doing a quick glance of when their last physical was, and then I'm scheduling that physical with their PCP so that they can discuss things like colonoscopy, right? Because Luis is 50. is a cis male, 50 year old patient. So he might need some other screening tests that we haven't addressed yet. So yeah, that's, that's like the main holistic care approach for this case study. That's our episode for today. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you subscribe, leave a review, and tell all your NP friends so together we can help as many nurse practitioners as possible give the best care to their patients. If you haven't gotten your copy of the ultimate resource guide for the new NP, head over to realworldnp.com guide. You'll get these episodes sent straight to your inbox every week with notes from me, patient stories, and extra bonuses I really just don't share anywhere else. Thank you so much again for listening. Take care and talk soon.